and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and your host Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody welcome in it's David Summers again hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. And again sending our best wishes to Jeff Maldron. We hope he is back Hosting this studcast again next week. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Hank Williams Jr. used to sing, There ain't no hoss like the Tennessee stud. And in wrestling, there ain't no storyteller like our Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, Ron? Where are you doing, Dave? Thank you very much for that introduction, my man. We're going to tell a couple of really good stories today, as a matter of fact. Uh, today, we're going to do something a little different uh, in the normal format for us. We're going to uh, pay tribute to a gentleman that died four days earlier than we we're broadcasting this show. He actually died on Saturday, April 18th, and uh, his name is Dick Steinborn. Tremendous wrestler, uh, talented individual. And we're going to take some time in this program today to uh, pay tribute to Dick Steinborn. Uh, and, and we're going to continue to talk about him in the future as time goes on. He's a pretty much a pivotal character in the success of Southeastern Knoxville to, because he was such a tremendous wrestler and spent uh, quite a bit of time in 77 and 1978 there with us. So uh, we're going to spend some time talking about him today. I'm going to tell a couple of stories about him. And uh, you, I think hopefully fans will get a uh, feeling for what kind of man he was. And uh, we're, we're going to got a great learning tree today. Uh, the, the gentleman asked uh, for the learning tree today. Will I compare promoter styles? Vern Gagne to Leroy McGurk, Sam Muchnick to Nick Goulas and Eddie Graham to Vince McMahon Sr. Quite a combination right there. And he liked for me also to explain, was it difficult for wrestlers to adjust to the different styles of these promoters? Good question. So I want to jump right into it, Dave. That's all right, man. Yeah, you know, I've heard you tell a lot of stories about Dick, and it seems like for everything that you have had to say about Southeastern Wrestling, Dick Steinborn was just standing right there with you. Yes. I mean, he was a great friend, and we're going to kind of touch on uh, on what he was all about. I've touched some of it uh, in 1976. Uh, we've been talking about cards that he's been on, 
But I, I think the best place to start with uh, giving fans a, a concept of who Dickie Steinborn was, if they're not familiar with him, a lot of fans around the world probably are because he wrestled so many places in the world. Uh, his father is where I'd like to start. And I have talked about his dad uh, in, in, small, in small segments. But we're going to talk a little bit about Heinrich Milo Steinborn. Uh, <laughs> and he's a German fellow. Okay, he immigrated to the United States uh, probably in the late 1800s. Uh, was a professional strongman, I guess is the way to describe him. He performed unbelievable feats of strength in the early 1900s. And to, the stuff he did was was just amazing. Uh, and I've seen pictures of this. I'd, obviously, I wasn't around in those days, but uh, he, he was born about the same time my grandfather was. Uh, Milo, I've seen pictures of Milo underneath an elephant and had all the all four of the elephant's legs off the ground. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and I, I've seen pictures of him letting cars full of people drive over his chest or holding them up with his legs. <laughs> and, and he, you know, he is to this very day regarded as the inventor, actually, of what what most people consider to be the power squad. It's used today exactly like Milo taught it a hundred years ago today. Pretty darn amazing. Milo was a very, very strong person. He wrestled, too. Started in 1922. He wrestled a lot of great wrestlers uh, and had a pretty darn good career as a wrestler. Uh, he, he wrestled one of the guys, uh, legendary Jim Londis. And, uh, Jim Londis is back in my granddad's day. And if you got in the ring with Jim Londis, you were somebody pretty spectacular. Uh, Londis was about as good as there was. Um, but Milo's wrestling career was nothing compared to his son, Dickie. And uh, some people call Dick Dickie. Dick had a tremendous personality. He was very likable character. And uh, he was a tremendous storyteller. And uh, he was not the powerful man, obviously, that his father was. But, boy, he was an extremely smooth and a skilled technician in the ring. He could really get it done in the ring. He was a child prodigy in wrestling, basically. He began his career in 1951 when he was 17 years old. And he's going to wrestle until 1985. And so in 34 years, and, and in those 34 years, he won almost as many single and tag team championships as that 34 in his travels around the world. Amazing the titles that he won, especially tag team titles. But he was a phenomenal wrestler everywhere. He was a star uh, in New York City and California before he was 20 years old. I mean, Dickie's story is a truly amazing one because of how young he was when he got started and the places he went and the people that he met and impressed and became friends with. Uh, just for listeners to give them an idea of the popularity in his travels, I'm going to name some of the territories and the alliances and the associations and the countries that he wrestled in. And, uh, and I, I got to say in advance to people, this is the best list I could put together, basically. And, and these are from matches that he first was in in 1951 right up until 1986 when he retired. Uh, he, he worked in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and New York City before they were even the WWF. Uh, he worked in California all the way up and down the coast. A very popular wrestler in California before he was 20 years old. Uh, amazing, I'll tell you that. 
He worked the NWA Florida Territory, the NWA Mid-Atlantic Territory, NWA Amarillo Territory with the Funks, NWA Gulf Coast, down there where you are, uh, Dave, mm -hmm. uh, in that area. He worked uh, Texas as the Texas champion for Southwest Sports uh, before they ever became world-class championship wrestling when the Von Erichs got involved. He worked NWA Georgia, champion there, Chicago, AWA, Hawaii, Australia, Japan, All South Wrestling in Atlanta, WWC, IWA, NWA Tennessee in Nashville, NWA Southeastern in Knoxville for me, 1977, WWC, NWA Southeastern in Pensacola in the late 70s, early 80s. And he worked for Stu Hart's NWA Territory in Calgary, Canada, and finished up in Puerto Rico. And I bet you fans everywhere in those territories that ever saw him wrestle, they still remember Dick Steinborn. He just everybody got along with him for him to be able to work in that many territories. That's kind of unheard of, wouldn't it be? It's, it is. I, I don't know that I've ever seen uh, a guy go so many places and right. be so well-liked. Uh, you know, uh, wrestlers sometimes, uh, you know, they, they one person likes them and another may not like them, but I think right. everybody pretty much liked Dick Steinborn. Uh, and he was so talented. Uh, and he had stories about all these things. So, I'm going to go back and start when, when I actually met Dick Steinborn. The first time I ever met Dick Steinborn was in 1964, and I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, he was wrestling in the main event in the Atlanta Auditorium for my dad's company, which was Georgia Wrestling, Georgia Championship Wrestling. To me, when I met him, he didn't look any older than I was. <laughs> and there he was wrestling in the main event. And my brother and I met him at the same time, and he was so nice to us and just sat with us and talked with us. Uh, you know, you didn't get that from a lot of wrestlers. And and what was unbelievable is he was going to defend that night his Georgia Heavyweight Championship against one of the most hated heels in the history of the sport, Mario Galento. Uh, and he was 30 years old, and wow. he looked like he was 20. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that same championship belt, I'm going to win from Bill Watts nine years later in 1973 at 25 years old. So, you know, I had the experience of uh, having some success in Atlanta, too, and winning that championship at an early age. But Dickie always looked young. If age finally took a little bit of toll on him, but he still had that young look about him. I didn't see Dickie after that. About 64, 65 until 1970, and that's when I went to Florida. I'd been wrestling for six months in Georgia, and Florida was the next territory that I was lucky enough to get into. And my first trip to Orlando to wrestle, I was introduced by Eddie Graham, who was there that night in Orlando. He went there a lot to Orlando. Back in those days, he was working, and he introduced me to Milo Steinborn. Uh, what an unforgettable experience that was, uh, you know. I shook his hand, and his hand was twice as wide as the normal hand and thick, and it reminded me of shaking hands with Danny Hodge. You could feel the tendons in his grip. He wasn't trying to squeeze your hand hard, but you could just feel the power that was there, and uh, you could only imagine he could crush your hand. He had, he had that same type of Danny Hodge strength where he could just crush your hand like he squeezes one of those apples and the juice runs out of it. So Milo was just as nice a person as his son.
He, and he owned part of the Orlando operation with Eddie and my dad. They were partners in the Florida Territory at that point. And Milo, his operation, he owned a part, I think, probably 50% of the Orlando operation. And he was also involved in that time frame with a little city on the east coast of Florida named O'Galley. And uh, there was another town that ran on Wednesday nights. O'Galley ran on Wednesdays. Orlando ran on Monday. O'Galley ran on Wednesday. Uh, there was one other major city in the state of Florida that ran every Wednesday night, and that was Miami, where I had attended college. But I was pretty green, you know, in 1970, 71, uh, 72. I didn't get to go to Miami very often, and I spent my first two years primarily on Wednesday nights in that little town of O'Galley run by Milo Steinborn, and Dick was almost always there. I didn't mind uh, Milo uh, being there, you know, because, uh, you know, what I really, really wanted to be around and who I wanted to be around more more my age was Dick. And Dick kind of took me under his wing back in those days. He watched every match I had every night, not only in Orlando, but in O'Galley. And um, afterward, he would come in and I'd call it tutor me. He would sit and tell me things that I did right, things that I did wrong, how I could improve. Uh, he provided me with the advice that no amount of money, I couldn't have paid him for what he, he, he gave me as a young wrestler. And he had such fascinating stories about wrestling in other parts of the world. He kind of piqued my interest to go other places, and, uh, and I'm going to do that in my career. And I look forward working in that tiny little town of Ogallet, Florida. Although my payoffs were pretty regularly $25 to $50. Uh, you know, it wasn't big money, but I was learning something and I was wrestling for people that I respected and admired. Dickie's so talented in many ways. Uh, he could do anything. Most of it was regarding what he could do in the ring. Other than being tremendous in the ring, though, he had a brilliant mind for finishes, for angles, and for programs. He could figure out he was he was a booker. And, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't work around the country a lot as a booker, but he was a booker. Uh, he was also a great photographer. He took shots at the matches, and he produced the programs for the Orlando uh, Monday night shows, and he sold them again in Wednesday night in O'Galley. And they were great examples of his ability at the other things he could do. His program was the best in Florida. It was amazing. And he was totally responsible for it. Uh, you know, and him being a great photographer, he also took my first wrestling shot ever. And he had me pose in a way I really didn't like. And I remember we kind of argued about it a little bit. You know, I kept saying, Dickie, I don't feel comfortable. This isn't what I want to look like. It's in what I want to do. But, uh, you know, I respected his opinion so much that uh, I kept my mouth shut. And uh, that shot uh, became my early shot that, that was seen in programs throughout the state of Florida and around the country for years. I never got away from that wrestling shot that Dickie Steinborn took. Uh, and, and a lot of people consider it to be one of my best. In 1972, Dickie disappeared. Uh, he went to wrestle somewhere in the world. I'm still in Florida and I'm I'm doing my thing. and. And Dickie's gone. I don't see Dickie until 1975. Mm. And he arrives one night. I'm working in Memphis. And I look up, and there's Dick Steinborn. Uh, I had no idea he had joined the crew there, that he had gone to work for him there. 
And uh, I was the Southern heavyweight champion down there in Memphis at that time. And so uh, he was like me. He was wrestling there for Jerry Jarrett, my grandfather, Roy, uh, on the Memphis side of the state. I just started Southeastern about a year before this. I was blown away to see him. And, and he was blown away after watching my match that night. It was very different than it was in 1970 when he would sit and watch those matches. Uh, he was just like, wow, gosh, guy, you, <laughs> you've really come a long way. He was very complimentary, but he still watched the match. I was kind of impressed by the fact that he still cared, you know, and he was that type of guy. He, he asked me on that night in Memphis, he says, uh, I hear you've got your own territory. And, you know, I said, yeah, I do, Dick. And, you know, and uh, he says, uh, would you book me? And I was like, God, he was the mid-American champion for Goulas and Welch for that company. <laughs> And there he asked me, he wanted to work for me. I was like, hot dog. I mean, uh, well, you can imagine how fast I told him yes. I mean, obviously, darn right, you can work for me. So he worked for me the first time ever for Southeastern on February 22nd of 1976. He defended his mid-American title against my cousin, Jimmy Golden. And I watched that match. As a matter of fact, Dickie was a baby face. Jimmy was a baby face. One of the greatest baby faces matches I ever saw. Uh, Dickie could do that with anybody. He, you didn't have to be a tremendous wrestler to have a tremendous match with Dick Steinborn. After the match that night with Jimmy, uh, he came in the dressing room and we sat down. We had an opportunity to talk. That doesn't happen sometimes a lot in business, but uh, he was going back to Nashville. But he wanted to spend some time with me, and I really wanted to spend some time with him. So. You know, we talked that night about uh, about he said, you know, I'd like to work more for you, Ron. I, I, you know, and he really loved it. He loved the town. He loved the atmosphere. He loved the dressing room and the uh, camaraderie that was there and the crew that I had. So, you know, we sat down and he, he, he we talked about how often uh, to expect him to, to be back. You know, what dates I could put in my book that you can depend on me to be here on these dates, Ron. And and then we started talking about the angles and how good he thought my crew was. And uh, and we talked about two angles in particular that we're going to spend a little time on today. He was going to, to become a mentor for me, basically, uh, as he had been when I was a young in my first year in the business. He's going to become a mentor for me again, as I'm pretty much struggling at this point to develop my skills as a booker and an owner of a wrestling company. I'm a, I'm a young guy in 75, uh, you know, 25, 26 years old. I don't have the skills that I ought to have, and I certainly don't have the knowledge that I needed, and he did, man. So it was probably one of the first big breaks I ever got in Southeastern to get a guy like uh, Dickie Steinborn and with his talent and his knowledge, uh, one day a week would have been great. If he'd just come one day a week, and worked on one card in Knoxville, that had been a great. But he enjoyed it so much, he decided to give him a notice in Memphis and come in full-time and work for me. And we're going to work an angle. He's going to work an angle with me on June the 4th, 1976, that's going to explode Southeastern. It's going to take the territory to new heights. Uh, and it's a most unusual angle. It's actually three shows in a row. It's two baby faces against each other. You just don't you don't build wrestling and you don't uh, return those type of matches very often. 
but he was such a great wrestler. And, uh, and I'd learned to wrestle a little bit by that point, too. We had such fantastic matches that the fans, I remember one of those was an hour draw. And uh, the entire stadium stood up at the end of the hour uh, and when we hadn't thrown one punch. It was what wrestling, you know, it gave me goosebumps that night because it's what wrestling was really all about. And you never got to see much of that. So we set up this tremendous angle that's going to begin with three shows, basically a three-show program in which he and I, two baby faces, like I just said, on the last two weeks in May and the first week in June, we're going to uh, do something that's going to pop that territory. So uh, we're going to, in the third match that we have, we have three Fridays in a row. We wrestle each other. We wrestle one week for the Southeastern Championship. We wrestle one week for his Mid-American Championship. And the third card, we come back and we put both the belts. I put my belt. He puts his Mid-American belt on the line. The winner gets both the belts and the loser leaves town. Wow. I mean, we had no heat. There was no heat between us. We shook hands after every match. The crowd loved it. Uh, we shook in 10 times, 15 times during the match. But on the end of the match, we shook each other's hand. So we're wrestling in each other in a loser-leave town. One guy's going to have both the belts, and the other one's gone. And that night, fans experienced two of the most incomparable angles in the history of Southeastern wrestling. Uh, Don Carson, who was a big heel. We talk about Don all the time. Don was injured that night, not by baby faces but by home road, Del Tortanaka and Norville Austin wow. by heel. I mean, that had never been done. I don't know that it had ever been done anywhere. Certainly never been done in Southeast. And then that very next match, both Steinborn and I, I beat him. He's got to leave town. But when the bell rang, the same three guys come in and hurt both me and Steinborn. I'm out for six weeks. Steinborn's gone. He disappears. Dick Steinborn never returns to Knoxville, but he went home to Orlando, okay? But a babyface called a gladiator came back two months later. So, you know, Dickie went out. Uh, I was out for six weeks. Carson was out for a month from three hills. It was it an was amazing angle that people just exploded over. They could not talk about it enough. How in the hell did that happen? And uh, we'll talk more about that in the future. But, uh, you know, after he comes back in the next two weeks following that night, territory is changing a bunch of talent. And the two weeks following that particular night in which I get hurt, in which Carson gets hurt, in which Steinborn is gone, uh, three major stars come into Southeastern for the very first time. Bob Armstrong, Carl Von Steiger, and Louis Tillet. And all of this came from that conversation that Dick Steinborn and I had on February 22nd. 1976, the very first time he came to Knoxville. So, uh, you know, I, I, we're going to get back to this again because Dick is a pivotal figure in Southeastern wrestling. Uh, done so much to help me get that thing to a monster territory that it becomes. And uh, it's kind of just the beginning of our business part of our relationship. I'll be talking more each week in the future about Dick Steinborn. Uh, and I'll talk about these two angles. And, uh, and the lead up to these two angles. Uh, but uh, right now, I got two stories about Dick Steinborn that I want to tell today. And I don't want to take uh, up all the program, but I do want to tell these stories. And the first one takes place 
in Manchester, Kentucky. It's a little town in Kentucky. Now, we talked uh, last week or the week before, Studcast before, about putting TV in Hazard, Kentucky. This is a town that ran off of that television out of Hazard, Kentucky. It's not too far from Hazard. It's up there in the middle of the eastern part of the state of Kentucky. And it's a small town, but it's a crazy little town, uh, you know, and, and what we were running into up there for wrestling was crazy crowds. And so we booked Manchester, Kentucky, and there were small wrestling operations up in that part of the country that uh, had been there for many years. And, and they probably figured that some of these towns are their towns. But uh, I had that television in Hazard, and I had the TV out of Knoxville that was almost reaching up into that part of the country, too. And uh, it was anybody's towns. It, it, nobody owned them. They didn't buy anything. So uh, I, I started booking my, my wrestlers there. I was bringing bona fide, big-time wrestling to towns that had never seen it. And we booked this Manchester, Kentucky. I remember driving in there. Match starts at 8.30, and at 8 o'clock I get there, me and Rob. There was a line of people outside the gym that was three people wide and 100 yards long. And they had probably already filled the gym. It was like, wow, you you just, I remember Rob and I were like, geez, man, we need a building three times this big. You know, and it was a big old gym, too. It probably held 3,000 people. It was sold out, basically. And I, I believe that this, because some of the wrestlers have been running that town, they probably had relationships with the police there. I, I spoke with Bo James, who's kind of an expert about that part of the country, a couple of days ago. We were talking about Manchester, and he said, Ron, that in 2003, it was supposedly the number one most corrupt city in America. <laughs> so so what did, I believe these wrestling promoters had talked to the police and said, you know, you we don't want these guys back here anymore. So anyway, we, we have a great card. We have super guys. This is somewhere in 1977. Don't have an exact date for this, but we're drawing big money. Stompers in the crew. Uh, David Schultz is in the crew. Uh, Bob Orton Jr. is in the crew. Ronnie Garvin's in the crew. Uh, it's just, well, we're rocking. We have so many great wrestlers. And the baby faces are Armstrong and me and Rob and Jimmy and Stallings and, I mean, uh, Tony Charles. Uh, it's just we had a, so much tremendous talent. And the first match of the night, we had a riot. In fact, the riot started when Schultz started to the ring. He never got to the ring, and the fans jumped him. <laughs> that's, that's how much heat people had and how much they were into their wrestling up there. This town was just, it was just, it was seriously dangerous. So the, they never got to the ring and never had the first match. And the police uh, arrested Schultz and took him to jail. First match. Second match goes on and they get the match over, but they have their riot after it's done. Thank goodness. And uh, I think that's Bob Orton Jr. in that one. And they take him to jail. So the next one that, it, this went on. They rested four heels before the, the main event and took them to jail. And then they there was an altercation in my dressing room. The police came back, and they were trying to find out who runs this. And I was telling them, I, I handle it. You know, and they, they were telling me, you know, this and that. And you, you're never coming back here, and we're going to close you down. And they were making all these threats. And Mike Stallings is a young boy. He, he gets involved, and 
he starts mouthing off a little bit at the police, and they arrest him. They put your hands behind your back, son. <laughs> They've arrested four heels and a baby face. And on this card is Dick Steinborn. Dick Steinborn comes back after he loses that loser leave, and he goes and takes his vacation. He comes back as the gladiator, a masked wrestler. So he's wearing a mask. He does somehow doesn't get arrested during the course of the matches. But anyway, the matches are all over, and Mac, my referee, comes, and he goes, Ron, uh, he goes, what are you going to do? He goes, you know, they got five guys down there at the jail, you know. And I said, well, Mac, I can't go down there and, and uh, try to get the, the heels out, you know. I, I mean, I'm not going to give away business and, and let them know what the hell's going on. I said, uh, tell Dick Steinborn to go and handle So Dickie does. He goes down. Now, the story gets better here. You know, it's probably 11 o'clock at night now. Uh, they've been there for three, two hours, uh, hanging around, waiting, and they go and they send for the judge. And uh, they come back two times, and they tell uh, Steinborn that the judge is in bed. <laughs> so, and they say, we're going to put you in the jail. We're going to put you in the cells. You know, and uh, Steinborn says, no, 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 please, please. He's being very, very nice. And uh, so finally, they talked the judge to come down. And the judge comes down to the courthouse dressed in his sleeping gown. And he's got one of those little hats <laughs> on the top of his head that's got the little tassel on it. Oh, wow. Like, like you've seen. And you'd only see this in the movies. Now, they're in Manchester, Kentucky, in the middle of nowhere. They've got a judge who has come out of bed. He's upset that these wrestlers have come to town and they've caused the problem here. And uh, he starts into each one of them. What is your name and what did you do? And uh, Dickie steps up for it. He says, your honor. And he's wearing his mask. They don't ask him to take his mask off. So he does it. And he, so he represents four wrestlers with his mask on. <laughs> and Stallings is a baby face. So he finishes up with Stallings, giving the judge some story about Stallings and all the problems that he's had, Your Honor. And he's a good boy and all the. I get the wrestlers that tell me all this a couple of days later. They say, Ron, you got to hear this one. And they tell me all the ways that uh, Dickie took care of the talent and he got him out. So anyway, final deal was the judge gaveled him down and said, $175 fine for each one of you. Back in the day, it was a whole lot of money. But that night, that town probably had 5,000 people in that little 3,000-seat gym, and their payoffs were about 350. So, um, you know, and I ended up paying their money anyway. I paid their 175 for them. So they got their whole check, and they didn't have to pay. But uh, Dick Steinborn was the guy that stood up for them and the guy that, uh, that basically got them out of jail that night. They might have, some of them might have still been there in Manchester, man. Mm. Wow. That is just, what, what was the charge? What were they arrested for? Uh, probably, you know, I think uh, what happened is, I know Schultz nailed a couple of people, you know, and what happens is once you get in those riots like that, you get hit and you, you got to protect yourself. You so can't just, you in can't the process do of going to the ring. Huh? Yeah. Just going to the ring. Wow. Jumped on his back. One person jumped out of the stands on his back. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was like crazy. And that's the way it was up there in those Kentucky towns. Uh, they had never seen real wrestling, and they were just uh, they were just so into it that you had to really take care of yourself. So you know they got most of them for 
for, uh, uh, you know, for hitting somebody or for whatever it may be. I don't know that he, and I'm sure the judge had all the actual names of the charges. I don't remember the guys telling me much about the actual, what the judge said that they were responsible for. Right. But uh, Dickey really did a heck of a job, according to those guys, of taking care of it. And he said they were laughing so hard, they had a hard time hiding their face because Dickey was making them all laugh. And the judge would laugh sometimes, and even the police were there would laugh at some of Dickey's jokes while it's going on. But uh, he was a great character. Ron, I, I have this picture, and I just can't believe this image, though. But the judge, is, it seems like his attire, he looks like, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge from one of the old versions of the Christmas story. But then Dickie, Dickie Steinborn is wearing a wrestling mask when he's, when he's defending the, the guys that were arrested. That that's just unbelievable. Great picture. Huh, man? I mean, Absolutely. only, only in the Eastern part of Kentucky. <laughs> Can you see that? No doubt. And, and you did the right thing because you not only paid their salaries for the evening, but you also took care of their fines as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you did, you had to do that for guys. I mean, they didn't do that on purpose and they didn't go out there and create that problem. Did so that, uh, that was just part change? of it. Did that leave you a little bit short for the night? Uh, no, no. I'll tell you, uh, there was a big crowd. Like I said, probably 5,000 people. I, I don't remember what the crowd, the actual yeah. crowd number was or the figures, but, uh, no, I, I came out pretty well on a crowd like that. All right. Another awesome story. I know you got more about Dickie Steinborn coming up. We're going to take a quick break. This is a great time to do that. And more on the way. Another Studcast almost in the books. We've still got a long ways to go. Hang in there. While we all sit at home and wonder what to do with our time, Super Studcast fans have the answer. This one, number 28, is a remarkable story about the Rougeau family in Canada. Those that have heard it say it may be the best yet at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Jacques Rougeau is one of the most interesting guests ever on a Studcast. Super Studcast number 28, about his family 75 years in the sport, makes listeners laugh and cry. The exchange between him and his former employer, the Tennessee stud is unforgettable. And believe it or not, Jacques' stories rival those of his hosts. This three hour roller coaster ride into Canadian wrestling history is as good as it gets at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. There is no better entertainment in podcasting. All right, Ron, you said you have another story about Dickie Steinborn. Where does this one take place? Well, this one's going to take place in Harlan, Kentucky, and I think this one is probably in the month of April in 77, 1977. Uh, this one has to do with my dad, and uh, my dad always wanted to wrestle for whatever reason. Uh, I could never figure this one out, but every time he came over to see what was going on in Southeastern, he lived on the western side of Tennessee. He would ask me about working Harlan, Kentucky. He would say, I want to work in Harlan, Kentucky. I've heard so much about it. So uh, I finally booked him there. And uh, the, by this point in 1977, we got the Mongolian Stomper there. We have Dick Steinborn in this particular match in Harlan that night. And he has come back as the gladiator. And he's wearing a mask. Uh, he's a heel at this point. And... Uh, Ron Wright is managing the stomper. And uh, we have a security guard that I've had to hire to go with Ron Wright and stomper 
and every town outside Knoxville because we had so many riots and because they had so much heat that uh, they kept Stomper was the one that was scared of it. Stomper thought he was going to get murdered and killed. So I had to hire this security guard. So that's going to be in one corner of this ring. And uh, so my dad comes uh, and on TV that day, I'm in a match and I, they work my arms. Something happens and they're trying to, this is one of those times, I believe it's right before I wrestle Harley race for the world championship. And Harley's got a little bounty out there and wrestlers are trying to hurt me before I get to the world championship match. And uh, Dick Steinborn is one of the guys that, that hurts my arm that day. And so that night, my dad rides with me about an hour and a half north of Knoxville to Harlan, Kentucky. Harlan, Kentucky at this point is a tremendous little wrestling town. They have a beautiful gym, Kwood High School, a big, fantastic round gymnasium, 3,000, 3,500 people it would hold. And uh, we were putting in four or 5,000 every other Saturday night. So then this one sells out like all of them do. And so dad goes and sits down with the with Steinborn and with the Stomper and, and gets him a bunch of spots that he wants to do during the match. You know, he, he's going to do these high spots, uh, you know, little things like shoot me in, drop down. I'm going to arm drag you back, drop you, whatever it is. And I don't have any spots. I, I got no spots for anybody, but they had hurt my arm on TV and it got a lot of heat. So when we get to the town that night, we get in the ring and we're ready to go. Dad's got all his high spots figured out. Everybody's ready to go. They're ringing about to ring the bell. And uh, Dad says to me, he goes, let me start the match. And I go, no, no, you know, Dad, let me start the match. You know, and I said, I, I know you got some spots. I'll get you in here. We'll get you spots done. So he, he don't really like the idea, but I finally convinced him to let me start. They ring the bell, and uh, I go over. Uh, Dick Steinborn takes the hammer lock, drags me down into the corner where the stomper is. Stomper starts stomping the back of my arm, and uh, and Ron Wright's over there screaming in my face, and we have a riot. The bell hasn't rung 30 seconds, and the riot begins. And this is a big-time riot. It starts out as one guy comes running from the back of the building, and he slides into the ring. <laughs> and uh, so. I think a stomper got to him first, and he shot him right back out onto the floor head first. Uh, and then here comes another one on another side of the ring, and the Steinborn grabbed him, and he did something to him. So, you know, it started, but, and then we're trying. It looks like maybe we're going to control this thing, but the police, the local police, aren't helping a bit. Now, I've got the one guy that is in charge of security for the stomper and Ron Wright, but he can't stop this riot. He, he's trying to watch their backs. And he can't be all around the ring. So uh, the people just start coming then. You know, one guy comes, he gets thrown out. Another guy comes, he gets thrown out. Uh, and some guy gets kicked off the apron. And then here they start to come from everywhere. So it, we're losing control here. Uh, dead screaming. I, I can hear him above the whole crowd. And he's screaming, I ain't done my spots. I ain't <laughs> done my spots. He ain't got in the ring, right? He's drove an hour and a half to Harlan. And he's going to do his deal in Arlen, Kentucky, and he's not gotten a ring, and we've got a riot going. So this riot is is a nasty one. I mean, there's a lot of guys, fans, that make it inside the ring. Most of the time, you're able to keep them off on the outside of the ring. But this one, there's just too many. 
And uh, there's a policeman, one of the policemen that's supposed to be handling uh, the security for the heels to get them back and forth the ring, jumps into the ring himself, and he pulls out his gun, and he sticks it in Dick Steinborn's belly in the corner. Steinborn's backed up into the turnbuckles. And there's a ride going on all around him. In fact, there's a guy grabbing Steinborn's leg, trying to grab his leg, who's right there by the apron, and Steinborn starts stomping his head on the apron while he's talking to the cop. The cop says, stop it, stop it, or I'm going to shoot you. (laughs) So I'm right there. I can see what's going on. I'm like, oh, my gosh, man, this is a bad situation here. Steinborn just keeps stomping the guy's head that's right there on the floor by the edge of the ring. Ron Wright's trying. He's in the ring. He's had to get into the ring to protect himself. And uh, it's just total pandemonium. And he's got the gun in Dickie's belly. So I got to figure something to do. So I just kind of take the policeman and shove him off to the left. And I nail Steinborn with a punch. And pow, it pops real good. And uh, the policeman, he's all excited and he's all scared. And he drops his gun. <laughs> his gun falls on the floor right there in front of Steinborn and Steinborn kicks the gun out into the crowd. <laughs> and like, so, you know, I'm, I'm like everybody else, like the old man and like all of us were trying to get control of it. But at that point, it was it for me. I, I told him <laughs> as soon as Dickie kicked it out, he looked at me and he goes, Oh, <laughs> I go, I go, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, so I got hit the floor, and me and Dad, we hit the floor. And uh, and then the Seals got the fighting off into the crowd. Oh, my gosh. All the way back to the dressing room, bodies laying everywhere. One of those really nasty ones that you don't know how much this is going to cost you. And uh, we get back to the dressing room, and I'm shaking my head like, oh, my gosh, man, you know, this ain't what we needed. You know, we wanted to give them a great match and let them all have a good time. And instead, we just end up with a big brawl and a lot of bodies laying around and a lot of people hurt, probably. And uh, Dad's over there screaming, I never got to do nothing here. I never got to do my spots even. And I'm going, Dad, your <laughs> spots don't mean anything now, man. I go, let's just get the heels back in here in one piece. So we go out the heels dressing room door and fight them, help them get back into the dressing room. And that was dad's experience. An old Dickie Steinborn, you know, I, I'll never forget. And he and I sat and talked about that one a lot. When the cop put that gun in his stomach, man, I asked him a couple of days later, what did you think? And he said, I thought I was going to die, right? <laughs> because, wow. because this guy's going to shoot me. And he said, especially when you hit me, he said, when you hit me, he goes, it scared me. And he said, when he dropped it, he said, I didn't want to pick it up because then some <laughs> other cop would shoot me. You know, he goes, so he goes, I didn't, I just thought, get it out of here. And he kicked it out in the crowd. So, uh, you know, Steinborn, uh, he, he was there. He saw a whole lot of things. He made a whole lot of things happen during the time he was there. He was a uh, great contributor to Southeastern for me, not just there, but once I go to Pensacola, I'm going to take him there with me. He's going to do uh, some commentary in Pensacola for me. Uh, Like I said, he could do anything. He's also going to be a local promoter for me in Montgomery. He's going to become part of that company as well. And uh, 
just was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And we're not going to leave Dick Steinborn here uh, in today's tribute. I just wanted to say some good things about him today, tell a couple of stories. But uh, he's an integral part of what's going to happen in 76 and 77 in Southeastern. And we'll be coming back to him on a regular basis. All right. And another footnote on the way out on that one. You, you obviously had to take your father back home. Did he ever get the match that he had wanted in, in Harlan? No. And he told me on the way home, he says, he says, I'm never coming back here, boy. <laughs> I said, well, dad, I'm sorry. I apologize again. I must apologize 30 times on the way home. You know, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, dad. I'm never coming back. I said, okay, well, please don't. (laughs) You're not going to miss anything. For real. Another great one, Ron. All right. It's about time to get that cold drink and take a seat under the learning tree. The question today is going to be very interesting. It has to do with some of the all-time great names in the sport. Yeah, it it does, Dave. Uh, It really does. You know, this question is a pretty darn good question. It, It brings up three men that were just promoters and owners of companies. Uh, He's talking about six different guys. He wants me to compare two guys and another two guys and another two guys. Well, three of these six men were just promoters and owners of companies. The other three were not just promoters and owners, but they were outstanding wrestlers at the same time. So, uh, And the question comes from a gentleman named uh, Jerry Cannon, and he asked, will you compare promoter styles? Sam Muchnick, to Nick Goulas, Eddie Graham, to Vince McMahon Sr., and Vern Gagne to Leroy McGurk. And he asked the second question, and was it difficult for wrestlers to adjust to their different promotion styles? Very good question. Uh, And luckily, I personally knew five of these six wrestlers, and uh, four of them I wrestled for. So, you know, this is a question that... uh, that I know some of these people, and uh, and, I, and I know some of their history. Uh, I kind of don't know which <laughs> which two to start with, but uh, let's first compare Vern Gagne to Leroy McGurk. Uh, I never had the pleasure of wrestling for, for either of these two guys, but I did meet Vern uh, originally at National Wrestling Alliance meetings every summer in Las Vegas, uh, starting in 1975. Uh, That's the year I became a member of the National Wrestling Alliance with Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville. I had another meeting with uh, Vern personally in Minneapolis in 1987. I flew to Minneapolis and met with uh, Vern and Jerry Jarrett to talk about the three of us and how our companies could combine efforts to maybe compete against Vince Jr. and what Vince was beginning to do to territories and and his push to take over wrestling. Interesting. So, uh, so, uh, you know, so that meeting's another topic, obviously, for another time. Yeah. But uh, let's begin with these two and, and some history about both of these guys, their backgrounds and their ring ability. And, uh, and because uh, the ring ability and their backgrounds, in my opinion, that's where promoters and, and owners of wrestling companies develop the style of wrestling business that they're going to operate. They kind of get it from their background. And, uh, you know, if they've had that in-ring experience, they're usually going to run a different type of company than someone that doesn't. So Leroy McGurk, one of the most famous wrestlers from Oklahoma ever. Uh, both he and Ganya won national championships, NCAA college championships in wrestling. Uh, McGurk won his championship in 1931. 
in spite of the fact that he had lost an eye at an early age. So he was blind in one eye. Uh, and in 1931, blind in one eye, he still won a national championship. Uh, and it just shows you that wrestling's a sport of touch. Uh, you know, when you get your hands on somebody, you don't need to see. You don't need eyes to wrestle. And uh, Leroy McGurk was a pretty much proof of that. So after he left college, he was taken into the promotership of the territory there that was owned by Sam Avey in 1934. When he got out of college, McGurk, he went to work for Sam Avey, and Sam Avey just basically took him in as a partner. Uh, Sam Avey's territory was Oklahoma and Arkansas, basically. Uh, Leroy became one of the most famous NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champions of all time, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, he set the bar, basically, for NWA Junior Champions, and he was followed by another great one, also from Oklahoma, Danny Hodge. Uh, so, you know, the two of the greatest wrestlers of all time, obviously, right there, came out of Oklahoma and wrestled as junior heavyweights. Leroy set the record uh, that has never been broken. Just a, this is an unbelievable record. He was the longest running champion of any kind in professional wrestling history. That means lightweight, junior heavyweight, heavyweight. He held his championship is junior heavyweight championship belt for 10 years from 1939 to 1950 wow uh, for more than 10 years he was the champion the uh, in the country he never lost his belt a tremendous wrestler uh then in 1950 uh the only reason he retired is he had a car wreck he was in a car wreck in which he wasn't driving the car he was blind in one eye, and he had those special glasses that he wore because he needed it for his good eye. And this eye accident, he smashed into the front windshield and broke those lenses, and he lost his good eye. So uh, Leroy McGurk uh, becomes a wrestling promoter in 1950. He's just a promoter after that point. He's not a, He can't wrestle as a pro uh, without eyes. Uh, it's a little different than wrestling amateur. So uh, he's forced to retire in 1950 after that accident. And in 1958, he took over the reins from Sam Avey of the Oklahoma Territory, and he ran that territory with huge success until he left the sport for good in 1982. Uh, some say that Leroy McGurk could tell you more about a wrestling match and how good it was blind than most promoters could with their sight. I mean, he just had a feel for what was going on in the ring. Bill Watts told me the story that he used to, Leroy used to do commentary on the show and he could tell what type of slam or suplex was happening by the sound of the guy hitting the mat. Interesting. Wow. He could call commentary without having eyes. That's how much he was in tune to wrestling. And he's in at least one Hall of Fame, uh, no doubt. He should have probably been in others. So Bill Watts, that I just mentioned, worked beside him for many years. And he gives a whole lot of credit for his success to Leroy McGurk. But Watts took over and expanded the Leroy's original territory from uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma into Louisiana and Mississippi. He changed the name of it to Mid-South Wrestling. Uh, it became a huge territory. God knows, uh, got great talent, uh, guys, a junkyard dog uh, 
Sylvester Ritter came uh, from there and so many other great stars. Uh, But Leroy loved his sport. He had a reputation as a great payoff man so far as his promotion skills and the like of what he wanted to run as a promotion company and what kind of company he wanted to have. He loved this sport. He had a tremendous reputation. He paid guys very well. And he was an impartial promoter. He did not favor one guy over another, uh, which was very important. He emphasized the basics of wrestling. He, he based his territory on it, and he built his business around good, solid wrestling. Let's talk a little bit about Vern Gagne's career. Vern Gagne was a tremendous athlete, played football and wrestled in high school. He got a scholarship played football at the University of Minnesota. He also won two NCAA national championships in wrestling there. Uh, He was on the 1948 Olympic team as an alternate. In other words, the guy in his weight class, if he got hurt, couldn't wrestle, he was going to be wrestling on the Olympic team. He went there as an alternate. Then he got drafted. This is what type of athlete he was. He got drafted into the NFL by the Chicago Bears. Wow. Um, George Hallis, the owner of the Chicago Bears, forced him to make a decision to whether he he wouldn't let him wrestle and play football. So Hallis said, you've either got to be a wrestler or you've got to be a football player. He wouldn't let him be both. And Vern chose wrestling. And he chose wrestling because he could make more money in wrestling back in those days than he could make as a football player. Yeah. It was the same way when I was in college and I went to – I probably could have played basketball in the pros, possibly, but I made more money wrestling than I, than they were making back in those days as basketball players. So far more, he was making a hundred thousand a year, traveling around the country and making a hundred thousand dollars a year, way back in the late forties. A lot of money, far more than football players were making. Yeah. Vern was also a businessman. He formed his own territory in 1960 called the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. Uh, And he, you know, Vern had no ego. He was respected enough that they allowed Vern every year to come and attend the National Wrestling Alliance meetings in Las Vegas, even though he wasn't a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. That was how the respect he had amongst promoters around the world. He filled his company pretty much kind of like Leroy did. He filled his company with tremendous talent. He had great bookers, Vern, and he had lots of wrestling. He really put the emphasis on wrestling. He was his own champion for many years. (laughs) He was his own heavyweight champion, and uh, obviously he had all that wrestling background. Obviously, he was was a tremendous star. Uh, He followed that run with another great AWA world champion, a guy named Nick Bockwinkle. And uh, Nick was never an NWA world champion, but boy, he certainly could have been. I worked with Nick Bockwinkle many times in Florida. He and Ray Stevens used to come to Florida and spend the winters in 1971, 72, 73. They would work all summer up north in Minnesota in that cold country, but when it got wintertime, they had the money and they had the skills to be able to go wherever they wanted and uh, to work with those two guys. Nick Bockwinkle was a classic, but so was Ray Stevens. I mean, that was probably one of the greatest wrestling teams of all time. Uh, Nick had a great influence on me in my first year in Georgia. He was champion in the Georgia Territory when I started, and uh, he spent a lot of time. He watched kind of like Steinborn did my matches. 
And every night he would take me back to the dressing room and he would tell me the things that I did wrong and what I did right. I really, really loved Nick Bockwinkle. He was a great guy. And uh, so I was asked to compare these two greats. And boy, that's pretty difficult uh, <laughs> in their promoter styles. But again, uh, as Leroy had, Vern held to his wrestling roots. He developed a territory that stretched its wings from the Midwest all the way to the Pacific in San Francisco. That territory had tremendous success. The, it was in San Francisco and Denver and uh, Salt Lake and all these big, huge cities. It was a huge territory. It had tremendous success, and it was always based on good, solid wrestling. And honestly, I really don't think there's much difference between Leroy McGurk and Vern Gagne as promoters and owners. I mean, they both came from pretty much the same type of backgrounds, and they both accomplished so much. Uh, their amateur backgrounds obviously were similar, and uh, that influenced their promoter style, starting as amateurs and wrestling on that amateur level and then becoming pros. They took that basic wrestling knowledge with them and that respect for the sport, and they that's what they wanted to have in their companies, and they filled their companies with guys who could really wrestle. Uh, they were extremely successful, both of them. Uh, they were respected, no doubt about that. And they were admired by their associates as well as all the wrestlers, too. So they did one other thing, too. They made sure the name of wrestling, that name, wrestling, was on the marquee outside of all their arenas. And that that's what the fans got when they got inside those arenas. They got that wrestling. And uh, they were two of the best, in my opinion. Wow. So, so next, let's look at uh, Nick Goulas, comparing Nick Goulas to Sam Muchnick. <laughs> this one is very interesting. I'll tell you that. Neither was ever a wrestler, but the comparison between these two ends right there. Now, let's start with Nick Goulas. He was my grandfather, Roy Welch's business partner in the Tennessee Territory. And uh, there couldn't have been two partners that were <laughs> more exact opposites than my grandfather and Nick. Uh, Roy had a wrestling background as a shooter. It came up as a shooter, taught by Dutch Mantel, and, you know, uh, it came up the hard way. And Nick had much better education than Roy, but he didn't have any wrestling knowledge. So they worked well as a good guy, bad guy team. Uh, Roy was kind of hard on the wrestlers. He required discipline. He wasn't hard on them, but he required discipline. He didn't want them uh, riding with each other, being seen with each other, talking to each other. Uh, you know, he he wanted to run. It was a kayfabe situation with Roy, and he demanded it. And Nick then would play the soft guy and come along behind him after Roy ruffled the feathers and apologized for Roy being so tough and, you know, and trying to make guys, you know, I will, you know, I don't, I don't do things like that, uh, you know, but Roy had his way. Nick had his way. It was an extremely large territory that they had, the Tennessee Territory. And it was difficult to manage it because of the distance that some of those cities were away from Nashville. Territory went all the way to the Gulf Coast, all the way to the Ohio River. I mean, it was monstrous. It, it went uh, into Arkansas and, and over to Georgia. It was, a, it was just a massive territory. Early on, they kind of split the major cities in the territory between the two of them as to which one's going to run which towns. Roy, because he lived on the west side of the state, of Tennessee, he, he took the west side of the territory, which made him responsible for cities west of Nashville. Nick took, obviously, those cities that were east of Nashville. 
they promoted obviously in a different manner, extremely different manner. I mean, there was no no comparison to the way they promoted Nick and Roy. Roy operated the best city, Memphis, in the territory. Nick was in charge of Birmingham, Chattanooga, and Nashville. Roy had wrestlers' respect. He paid them well. He treated them, all of them, the same. He dealt with fewer cities because he also had a second business that nobody else had this type of deal. Nobody else was capable of running a big, huge wrestling company. But Roy not only ran a wrestling company, at the same time, he built one of the largest dairies in the South. He had his hands full. He could spend three days a week with wrestling and three days a week on his big dairy, which was uh, over close to the Mississippi River in Tennessee. So as I mentioned earlier, they promoted in an extremely different manner. Roy believed in that solid wrestling, just as the two guys we talked about earlier, Leroy McGurk and Vern Gagne. Nick, he preferred the gimmicks and the blood. Uh, Wrestlers with shooting backgrounds, and a love for pure wrestling, like like his brother Herb, like Roy's brother Herb, they wanted to work for Roy. Wrestlers that had that shooting background and really a respect for wrestling, they wanted to work on the west side of the states and work for Roy. Uh, Nick preferred the gimmicks and the blood, and the gimmick guys like Jackie Fargo and some others uh, stayed on the east side with Nick. They preferred to work with Nick because Roy had some guys that were tough, and they 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 were stiff. <laughs> and it was hard to work on the west side of the state, but the uh, guys on the east were a little softer and easier in the ring. So, it, they, you know, there was just the different styles as promoters. So, so they each did these separate payrolls for their own talent. Roy had a great reputation for paying off. Nick, not so good. In fact, Nick had a bad reputation, just be blunt about it. Roy respected guys who gave their hearts and souls to the business and Nick had little respect for any wrestlers except those he personally liked. And uh, that, to me, was a big mistake for him uh, because it was the kiss of death for him, I think, because you can't make a difference in your employees like some and not like others. And uh, guys get to see in that. Wrestlers get to see in that. And it, it's it's the kiss of death. And, uh, you know, I kind of learned that early on that, uh, you know, you don't want to treat anybody different than anybody else in your company. So when they finally split their territory in the 1970s, Roy's side continued to do great business. Nick's side was out of business within a few years. Uh, my partners and I in southeastern Pensacola, we bought Birmingham from Nick in 1980 for only $75,000. It was a steal. I mean, you know, um, it was a great wrestling town, but he had killed it. He'd, he'd destroyed it from the use of his talentless son. I guess that's a good way to describe George Goulas. Uh, he had no talent whatsoever, and Nick took his son because he was his son and made him his top baby face and put the championship belt on him and killed his business. Oh. So, so Nick had little respect for the wrestlers and even less from the powerful promoters that were running the major companies in the sport. Now let's shift gears and let's go to someone that's the gentleman wants to compare Nick to Sam Mutznick. Wow, uh, Sam Mutznick's career is totally different uh, from from Nick Gulis's career. Sam was a great man. God, I love Sam Mutznick, and so did so many other wrestlers and promoters around the country. He was born in 1905. 
three years after my grandfather was born. He worked in wrestling many years before he gained control of one of America's greatest wrestling cities, St. Louis. Uh, he promoted there for 50 years. He created and produced the groundbreaking television program called Wrestling at the Chase in 1959. This program emanated from the ballroom of the Chase Hotel. It was a wrestling program like no other. They dressed up women in fine dresses and men in tuxedos to come to watch wrestling, sat at tables, and ate dinner while you had your wrestling. For 24 years consecutive, that television program aired in St. Louis. It was one of the biggest wrestling programs in America. I was lucky enough to wrestle in it 25 times myself in 1973 and 74. So Sam spent 50 years in St. Louis, and he was recognized at least 25 years of that as the wrestling industry's most influential promoter. He was the top dog. Another aspect of his greatness came from being a founder of the largest cooperative of wrestling promoters in the world. He was, in my opinion, undoubtedly the father of the National Wrestling Alliance. He was elected 22 of the 25 years between 1950 and 1975. Uh, most of those years unanimously elected. He personally instituted forward-thinking programs for the National Wrestling Alliance by making donations of thousands of dollars to the United States Olympic wrestling teams over the years that he was president. Uh, he was widely considered the equivalent of Pete Rozelle to the National Football League. I mean, he's the guy that put wrestling for the NWA on the map. Uh, and he was like a father to me. Like I said, in 1973 and 74, when, when I was there a lot. In fact, he booked me on every St. Louis show for a year and a half. It was unbelievable. And he was responsible for my becoming a star in the sport before my fifth year, uh, which was unheard of. Nobody became a big star in wrestling if, without having been around for more than five years. And he pushed me strong enough that I became one of those big names early on. So. I guess you can easily tell what my opinion is about the comparison between Nick Goulis and Sam Munchley. But basically, there is no comparison between Nick Goulis and Sam Munchley as wrestling promoters or owners. Goulis had little respect from other promoters. He had little respect at the box office compared to other places around the country. And he left a legacy of really sheer laughter. People laughed at him. You know, Sam Mutzik, on the other hand, he was admired. He was revered as a promoter by just about everyone in wrestling. He was an iconic figure when it came to the National Wrestling Alliance. And Sam left the legacy of love and total respect, man. So uh, that's where I am between those two, Mr. Cannon. And uh, the last two I was asked to compare is uh, Vince McMahon Sr. and Eddie Graham. Now I'm going to start with Vince Sr. Now, oddly enough, Vince Sr. was responsible for making Eddie Graham a star. And that's where Eddie Graham got his big name, was for working with his partner in the WWWF for Vince McMahon Sr. as his tag team champions. And uh, Eddie and Vince Sr. had a tremendous close relationship, friends and in business, for many, many years, forever after that time frame. And I don't know all about it, but I, I saw it developing. I knew about it because I was sent to wrestle 
in Madison Square Garden by Eddie Graham out of Florida to wrestle for Vince Sr. You know, I don't know nearly as much about Vince Sr. as I do about Eddie, but I do know the difference between the two, and it was in the type of talent that they looked to get into their territories. Vince Sr. loved that huge, muscular-type guy. He loved that Bruno Sammartino, that Pedro Morales, the Gorilla Monsoon, those big old muscular guys. And part of that was because Vince Sr. was never a wrestler. He never actually wrestled himself, and I believe he was gravitated toward these big guys because he didn't ever wrestle. So he therefore had less appreciation for those that had great wrestling backgrounds. He didn't appreciate uh, Jack Briscoe's. In fact, I don't think Jack ever got to work for him other than a couple of times as an example because Jack was not his type of wrestler. Uh, and this is, answers Mr. Cannon's questions here in a way. You know, and his matches in his part of the country up there in the Northeast, they were probably a lot less exciting than in other parts of the country because of the size of their wrestlers. These big guys couldn't make these beautiful moves, and they couldn't move around fast on the mat. And his territory was immense. It had a huge population, and it had many large cities. He didn't have to depend on wrestling every week in his cities because he had so many of them to go to. He didn't need to come up with as many angles. He didn't need to run long programs with the same guys as other territories did. He also didn't have to compete like the Southern territories did by these televisions that overlap from Georgia into Florida and from Florida into Alabama and Alabama into Tennessee. Uh, he didn't have to deal with that. He owned that whole northeastern part of the United States. He didn't have to give his fans the same type of wrestling. Uh, or a lot of wrestling because of the fact that he didn't have to go to those towns very often. He had the population. He had the huge buildings. He had the national media capital of America, New York City. It was pretty easy for Senior to do great business there. Uh, he was a good businessman. I respected him. And he, like Vern, came to the NWA meetings, and he was welcome there, even though he wasn't a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. I worked for him in the Madison Square Garden, 1973. We always had good conversations, Vince Sr. and I, at the NWA meetings. I'm a young guy just getting started. He had a lot of information that he could give me. He was a very likable guy. I really liked and enjoyed being around Vince McMahon Sr. Still, I often wondered, what would a Southern style of promoter have done in that part of the country if he had got control up there? I mean, there was just so much money there and so many, so many big, huge cities. Yeah. So uh, let's switch to Eddie Graham. Now, I could spend several entire shows on Eddie Graham. Eddie was like a father to me. He was born in Tennessee, just like I was. His, he was born in Chattanooga. He grew up poor and extremely tough. <laughs> I mean, he learned to shoot like my father and my grandfather. He respected real wrestling more than anyone I ever knew. I mean, he just loved his amateurs. He loved the shooters. As a promoter, he probably had more amateur and shoot wrestlers on his card than anywhere in the country, no doubt. He not only loved the business, but he protected it with every bone in his body. He was a great promoter, a great booker, and a great talent in the ring. He may be responsible for training and teaching, in my, my opinion, more great stars than anyone in the history of the sport. Not just how to wrestle, but he taught guys how to book, how to figure angles, 
and how to create these fantastic finishes that blew crowds away all over the country after they left there. Uh, he was a mentor to so many great guys, not just bookers, not just wrestlers, but uh, just, he was he was a charitable benefactor too. He he gave to the Florida's Boys Ranch a piece of every crowd and every night in Florida wrestling went to these poor abandoned orphaned boys in the Florida Boys Ranch. He was a tremendous symbol for wrestling as a promoter and one of the owners of the Florida Territory. He was a walking billboard. Everybody saw that blonde hair. They knew Eddie, and he promoted his business everywhere he went. He ran maybe the best promotion in the country with undoubtedly more real wrestling than anybody had. He was respected, and he was feared more than anyone in the sport. His success was unquestionable, and so was his word. If he gave you his word, you never had to question it. So if you compare these two, Eddie Graham and Vince McMahon Sr., uh, it's a little more difficult. One was born in the business with a silver spoon in his mouth. The other had to fight for everything he got. One inherited his father's company, and the other inherited hunger and poverty. And, you know, uh, one handled his business in a polite manner, asked for no problems, and the other was outspoken, looked for problems, and dealt with them sometimes in a very violent manner. They were both admired. They were both intelligent. They were both respected. And both of them left a legacy of success. So, Mr. Cannon, I want to thank you for your question. Before I answer the last one that you asked, uh, and I've selected uh, uh, five of these best promoters. And, you know, uh, you you have really done a good job here, Mr. Cannon. You really, you selected five of probably the best promoters and owners in history. You know, so, so let's answer your last question. Was it difficult for the wrestlers to adjust to the different styles once they changed from one territory to another? Great question. Uh, wrestling promotion. Promoting wrestling is a very different and difficult kind of business. Uh, you know, as a promoter and an owner of a wrestling company where I've been, you probably already know just about every wrestler in the business and the style of wrestler that they are, how they work, what style they work. Uh, you know who you wanted and who you didn't want, you know, and as a wrestler, it was exactly the same. You knew which promoters you wanted to work for and what they were looking for. So as a wrestler, you knew that a promoter was not going to change his style of promoting for you. That's not going to happen. You know, he owns this company. Uh, you know, he owns that business and you're the one that's wanting to work for him. You know, he's not going to change what he does to have you come and work for him. So if you've got that spot in his company, you're lucky to get that spot and you weren't already his type of wrestler, you adjusted to fit his style. You changed your wrestling to fit his style. So like it or not, if you wanted to get in the elite territories, you had to become a more complete wrestler. Mm. You had to be able to work differently in every territory sometimes. But uh, it was important. If you wanted to get in there, you knew it. You made that adjustment. And and for those that did, for some, adjusting their style was just too difficult. Some guys didn't want to do it, and they wouldn't do it. But those that did adjust their style, and when they found their way, and then they accomplished it, it made them an even better talent. And uh, 
That's basically my answer for you today, Mr. Cannon, and thank you very much for your question. I sure doubt doubt Mr. Cannon has any additional questions because I think you covered everything right there and an amazing job from the Tennessee Stud. You can find him and you can be his friend on Facebook, like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and you automatically become a friend of a legend. On Twitter, follow him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 28 is another record setter. Jacques Rougeau describes his family and their 75-year history. Part two, releasing on Tuesday, April 28th, is just as good as part one. It's really amazing. It is so full of wrestling history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. With all that said and done, so what's the plan for next week, Ron? Well, we're going to expand upon those angles I talked a little bit about today with Dick Steinborn and I that uh, the first time he came to wrestle for me in Knoxville uh, that we talked briefly about today. Then these angles are all going to take place on June 4th, 1976. They're going to change everything in the Southeastern Territory. Between mid-April and mid-June of 1976, things are really going to change dramatically. We're already doing good in 76. But uh, we are going to really start to blow the doors off. And, you know, it's going to be a great booking lesson in store for the listeners next week, because I'm going to explain in depth how difficult it was to change a large portion of my great crew overnight and not lose that extremely important momentum I keep talking about that you have to have. Uh, It's that time of year. It's about to come to summertime. Uh, Lots of people have been there for six months. You're going to change and bring in a bunch of new people. We'll talk about all that next week. Next week's studcast, it'll start back in the week of April 23rd. We're going to go back to where we were in April 23rd, and we're going to plan the path and talk about how we're going to get to having a record summer in 1976. Next week also, we've got a learning tree that's about a current subject. And the next question is, what effect would this COVID-19 virus have had on the territories that if if it had happened in the 1970s or 80s, and would any of them have been able to come back and survive? Well, I love that question. I mean, uh, you know, I love these learning tree questions. I mean, the fans out there, I I ran uh, social media stuff this past week, and I got so many fantastic questions. I mean, uh, to have such knowledgeable fans, and thank you very much, everybody that has sent those questions in. And uh, before I go, I always would like to thank uh, the loyal listeners that I have out there worldwide. Can't tell you how much I appreciate y'all. And uh, I thank you for taking this ride with me. And uh, hopefully you take next week's ride with me and uh, take care of yourselves with what's going on in the world out there and your loved ones. And uh, may God bless us all. Great job, stud. Thanks again for listening. I'm David Summers. This studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>